and good morning. Uh, it's worth saying if you're visiting with us, uh, obviously the way we do things in terms of our worship here is a little different than a lot of places, um, especially in terms of simplicity. Uh, you know, we don't have a band playing, we don't have a choir. Um, but if you notice those things, uh, that's actually because we uh, are really striving here to just stick with what we can read in Scripture as what God clearly communicates he's looking for in our worship toward him. Um, so why do we do things the way we do uh, in our worship and really in everything we do? Um, it's because we're trying to take the Bible really seriously and not wanting to add to that or take away from it. Um, we're really not interested in doing things in a way that is the tradition of men or according to the way our religious culture tends to do things. Um, we just want to get back to the Bible, and we just want to do things the way that we know God wants things to be done. So the lesson this morning is uh, going to be on a subject that might may seem like self-explanatory. Uh, what is sin, and why is it bad? And again, that may seem like, well, of course sin is bad, right? Uh, sin is what God calls things that are bad. But what do you think, if you, if you had to explain that to somebody who was not a Bible believer, uh, how would you explain that? How would you talk someone through why is sin bad? And what exactly is it that God calls sinful? Um, I think there's two things that are important to think about with misunderstandings of sin. The first thing is, it can seem like it's just a theological, religious concept that just kind of exists within the Bible. And if I don't believe in the Bible... Or if I uh, don't care what the Bible says, then sin just kind of disappears and doesn't really matter anymore because, after all, sin is just a Bible concept, right? And outside of the Bible, sin just doesn't exist, which we'll see is not, is not true, right? That's a misunderstanding. Second misunderstanding is something that I think is, is easy to fall into if you do believe the Bible. Um, and that is that it can seem like, not, not from really knowing God, but I think from a misunderstanding perspective, that sin is just these random things that God picks to call wrong. Uh, just arbitrary things, arbit arbitrary rules that are sometimes like a speed trap. And when I say speed trap, in, um, in Minnesota, there was a road that I drove on frequently uh, where the speed limit, like at a moment, transitioned from like 50 miles an hour to 30 miles an hour. And there was a cop that would usually hang out there because you're going to catch people going 50 miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour area. And we knew that was a speed trap. So you've got to be super careful to know that that's coming and slow down. And I think we can think about God's will like that. Like sin is like a speed trap. It's just something that God says to get us in trouble, to catch us, you know, and to accuse us of doing something wrong, which is also just a misunderstanding of just really not knowing God and just not understanding what the Bible actually teaches. Uh, so I do think it's important that we're able to understand what sin is and why it's bad. And I want to go back to what we read in our scripture reading, um, kind of a shorter section of it in verse 20 through 23. Uh, context is the Pharisees have gotten upset at Jesus and his disciples because they are not holding to, to the traditions of the elders by not washing their hands before they eat a meal. And this gives Jesus an opportunity to explain something really important, that it's not outward things or even foods that actually really defile a man, uh, it's something that comes out of the heart. So verse 20. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. 
For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So I'm going to summarize this list of things here, but I think this is a pretty fair summary of what Jesus is describing. I think there are four things that are inherently true about sin, always, every time. That sin is that which always deceives, that's really the primary thing, is there's always deception involved with sin, and we'll kind of talk through that more through the lesson. But sin always defiles. Jesus even used that word here uh, in verse 23. Sin always divides and it destroys. And if you look at these things, you know, why are these things attractive? You know, we'll talk about this in the second point is, you know, oftentimes we'll do these things because there seems to be some benefit, something to gain, something we think we're going to get from it that'll empower us or help us. But these are things that hurt. These are things that destroy relationships. You know, how do you like it if somebody always has evil thoughts toward you? Would you enjoy being in an, in an environment where everyone around you, you knew everyone around you was only thinking evil thoughts about you? Or how about thievery? What if you were in an environment where people were going to take everything that was yours? You know, or you were in a neighborhood where every night, round the clock, you know, as the cycle goes, every night someone's going to break into your house. Would you want to live in a neighborhood like that? If a realtor was like, hey, here's a house that's on the market, you know, it's cheap, it's guaranteed though. Someone's going to break in every night and take something that, no, you're not going to want to be in a house like that. You know, the idea is God calls sin the things that destroy relationships, the things that hurt our hearts, the things that divide us, things that, you know, when God sees injustice in the world, you know, people are able to see that even from a worldly perspective and God hates those things too. It's just that God is able to get to the heart of the matter. He is able to deal with that in, in a more productive way and resolve the problem better than anyone can in the world. The idea is God has not just chosen random arbitrary things to call sinful. Sin is always destructive. First to me and to someone else. God hates what the victim hates. You know, these are all qualities that involve victimization. They create victims. You know, even with just deceit. You know, how do you like it when something really important to you, you realize someone's been lying to you on something that really matters to you, that you know that someone's been manipulating you, you know, trying to use you for their own purpose and not telling you the truth. Does that hurt you or does that make you feel better? And I think it's safe to say in contrast to this, God's love is the opposite of all of these things. You know, number one, God tells us the truth. God conveys reality as it really is. And he equips us to deal with that reality. And he gives us the patience we need to learn how to deal with reality. He gives us the tools and the patience we need. And instead of defiling God's wisdom, God's love, God purifies, God cleanses, God preserves. Instead of dividing, God unifies, reconciles, and brings back together. And instead of destroying, God strengthens and gives life. God even seeks to restore life. All right. Not to be redundant, but for emphasis, I do want to define some of these words a little bit more. Um, I do think these words are very self-explanatory. We know what they mean. But again, just for the sake of emphasis, 
for the lesson, I want to define these a little bit more. I'll save deceit for last, and we'll start with defile. How sin defiles, to defile something is to make it filthy. It's to degrade its value. It's to degrade its usefulness or its appearance. It's to abuse or to misuse. And when I say it, I mean as God concerns, as God is concerned, people. Uh, it's to pollute or contaminate. You know, think about something simple. If you were about to take a sip of water and someone you trust says, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 that's actually contaminated. Are you going to drink that water? You know, again, that's what it means to defile, to make filthy, to degrade value, usefulness, or appearance, to abuse or misuse, to pollute or contaminate. So to divide, to rip apart, to make people who should be allies into enemies, to create conflict and become irreconcilable, as in to create conflict and there's no getting back together again. Destroy, to kill, to bring something to complete ruin, to take someone or something that's alive and to make them dead, and then to deceive. And again, this is really the primary problem of sin. I, I really don't believe we would sin if we weren't deceived first. Think about Genesis 3. What did, what did uh, Satan need to do with Eve to persuade her to eat the fruit? He had to deceive her first. To deceive means to, de to seduce by hiding the consequences of your decision. To seduce by hiding the consequences. It's to lie about what is true. It's to present something that is bad, something that defiles, it divides, or it destroys. But instead of presenting it with that truth, instead you try to present it as good, as beneficial, as productive. It's to try to present something that is ugly, and disgusting as something beautiful and alluring. I will only choose to sin if I am first being deceived. Satan always works primarily through the method of deception. So the theme through the Bible is God trying to break the deception of sin. God trying to convey truth and to help people realize what is true. All right, delving into this a little bit more, when sin is taken to its fulfillment, life becomes intolerable and impossible. You know, again, think about this with something like lying. So uh, in verse 22, Jesus says that deceit is a part of these things that defile. You know, someone might lie because they believe, well, this is going to protect me right now. If I just don't tell the truth, maybe I'll get in trouble or I'll lose money. Uh, so they lie, and it seems like if nobody catches me, there's only benefit. But again, we're deceived because we, what we see is just this little step. But again, God sees things from a different perspective. He sees sin not just in that one deceptive step, but in what it truly is in its fulfillment. What if everybody in society only lied all the time? with defilement and covetousness and thievery and sexual immoralities? What if everybody sexually didn't respect another person's free will, but everybody just took sexual fulfillment as they sought it out? What if parents were abusive and only abusive of their children? You know, again, we see these deceptive little beneficial steps, or we think it's beneficial. But again, what God calls sin, if it's taken to its fulfillment... It makes life intolerable, and it actually makes life impossible. 
not just in a intimate relationship sense, but even societally. If sin is taken to its fulfillment societally, society cannot function or exist. So turn to Isaiah 59. You know, there is one particular nation that God used to illustrate these things. There is one nation, Israel, where in the Old Testament, God, in contrast to his mercy, allowed sin to be taken to its fulfillment in a way where it could be seen that it was sin. That it was sin in contrast to God doing everything he can to stop it and prevent it. Isaiah 59, this is Isaiah speaking uh, as he is in a society where sin has taken a degree of fulfillment. Verse 59 Behold, the hand of Yahweh is not so short that he cannot save, or that it cannot save. Nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken a lie, your tongue mutters unrighteousness. No one calls in righteousness, and no one seeks justice in truth. They trust in confusion and speak worthlessness. They conceive trouble and give birth to wickedness. They break open vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become a garment, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of wickedness, and a deed of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are quick to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of wickedness, devastation, and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace, and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. And then I'll just read verse 9 as Isaiah starts to speak more personally and hopelessly. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness for brightness, but we walk in thick darkness." Does Isaiah sound like he's pretty happy with the way things are in his society in his time? You know, again, when sin is allowed to be taken to a fulfillment, life becomes intolerable and impossible. It is sin that destroys relationships. It's sin that destroys societies. So the question is, well, why is it we don't experience dramatic consequences all the time when we choose to sin? Why is it that at times it can seem like When we do these things that God hates, that God calls sin, it doesn't seem like there's some dramatic negative impact. Go to Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. The way I would summarize this is that it's based in God's character. God's desire is not for me to see sin because I've experienced its full force. You know, if I experience the full force of sin, when I sin, there's no hope. And so the reality is, because of who God is as a God of mercy, grace, patience, love, then God's desire is for us to learn about sin and see it and hate it through his mercy, not through the absence of his mercy. Look at Romans 2, verses 4 and 5. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You know, and this is in the context of an argument Paul is making that we see sin in the world. 
We see problems in the world, moral problems in the world. And he starts Romans 2 saying, but we've participated in those same activities. We can't condemn others without first recognizing that we're as guilty as anyone else's. Because God opens our eyes to realize that whatever my decisions might look like to me, I have participated in the overall problem of sin. And the only reason I have not suffered the full blow is because of God's mercy. Listen, you know why any of us would not hate sin? And I mean why we don't hate sin. I don't just mean, you know, we ignore it. We don't like it. Why don't we hate sin? Is because we are short-sighted. <laughs> the more wisdom I have from God, the more I see the full picture, like God sees it, that sin is destructive. Sin defiles. Sin divides. And it deceives When I understand and embrace this, I will hate sin. I will hate the impact that it has on others. I will hate the deception that it locks people into, that it's locked me into. And I will see more clearly the reality that it defiles, it divides, it destroys every time. And it's ultimately deeply self-destructive. So another angle of sin is how it works. Turn to James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. I think it's helpful to know how sin works and some very basic things with how to deal with sin, right? And this lesson is not a lesson where, you know, we're going to go through every angle of how to think about sin and work through, through sin, but just some very basic things, some fundamental things. James 1, 14 through 16, and then we'll talk more about what's on the board here. trying to, there we go. James 1, 14 through 15. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. So how does sin work effectively? So he mentions here in verse 14 that we are carried away, we are tempted when we are carried away by our own lust and enticed by it. Then when lust is conceived or fulfilled, that brings forth sin and sin when it's fully matured brings forth death. The idea is with lust, sin is able to work most effectively to deceive me through my desires. Desire is the door to the heart. The reason why I decide to sin, and I think this is really important in terms of not being deceived. Do you know why I sin, why you sin? And that involves things like having an outburst of anger, pornography, lying, coveting, whatever it might be, slander, whatever. I decide to sin because I want to. That's it. I want to. And that's been helpful for me with realizing I need to quit making excuses. You know, it's easy to think, well, I had to because I was in this situation or I was being pressured in this direction. No, no. I sin because I want to. And we really need to learn to be more honest about that. We sin because something within us we want to, because I believe it benefits me. I believe I gain something from sin. I believe it's going to empower me or help me. And I wouldn't sin if I didn't believe that. And that's just the reality. Sin works through my desire. And temptation is not sinful. And this is a misunderstanding I had growing up. And this has really helped me to understand this difference. In verse 15, 
when lust has conceived, that gives birth to sin. But notice back in verse 14, a person is giving into lust when they are allowing themselves to be carried away and enticed by it. To be tempted is itself not sinful. Hebrews chapter 4 says that Jesus was tempted, Hebrews chapter 5 rather, that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus dealt with temptation, I think, in even a greater frequency and severity than anything we've dealt with. So temptation is not the thing that's sinful or wrong. We are going to deal with temptation. But when we're being tempted, when we feel pressured to give in to something, to do something that God calls sin, it reinforces what I really believe in desire. You know, if I resist for a little bit, but then I give in, let's say to something like pornography addiction, it's because that's exposing something I really believe deep down is at some point I gave in and I believed, no, I really do want this. <laughs> There's something in me that really is drawn to this and I think it would benefit me more to do this than not to do it. Temptation just exposes what I really believe deep down. Temptation just exposes what I really desire deep down. So I think it helps us to consider that I have to change my desires. You know, how do we effectively overcome sin? Then we really need to get to the heart of our desires and change those things. Or else we're just going to continuously be enslaved by sin and repeat this process again and again with no effective change. And why do you think about how we change desire? Number one, desire is changed through exposure to, exposure to truth. So I didn't read verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived. Desire is changed by exposing my desires to the truth. If, if sin works most effectively through deception and being deceived into thinking I'm gaining something, I'm benefiting something, then it's helpful to expose my desire to the truth. Honesty is key. We have to ask ourselves hard questions. <laughs> what am I really getting out of this? <laughs> Why am I doing this? Is this actually going to help me? Or is this going to destroy me? Am I really going to gain something from this? And what am I losing? You know, what am I going to give up if I do this? And am I really going to feel better or after this is all said and done with? Or am I just going to be left guilty and shattered and have to go to God and get on my knees and confess and repent? Look back at verse uh, 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. The truth is, is there a greater benefit from giving into temptation? Or do we need to learn that there's a greater benefit from resisting temptation? Because we train ourselves, because we come from a background of sin, we train ourselves to think the wrong way, to assume that it's rewarding to give into sin. I'm gaining something. I feel better when I sin. No, we have to expose that to the truth. Sin defiles, it destroys, it divides, and it deceives. That's only what it does. There is no real benefit. And so not only do I have to reaffirm when I'm tempted, there are consequences to this, but I've got to reaffirm there is a blessing, there is a greater benefit to enduring. And then the last thing with exposure to truth, I think this is where confession comes in. James chapter 5 says, confess your sins to one another. 
Desire can be changed when we expose sin to the truth. That means confessing. If you're struggling with a sin that you just cannot seem to overcome, stop hiding it. You know, we are trying here to help each other, not judge each other and look at each other as icky and gross because, wow, you struggle with sin? I mean, get in the boat. (laughs) You know, we need to be honest with each other and realize that sin is overcome when we expose it to the truth. And that's not just biblically, that's also with each other. All right. Verse 17 and 18. Desire is also changed by deepening my appreciation for the things that I'm giving up by giving into sin. Look at verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Not from you, not from sin, not from the world. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. You know how we change our desires? We increase our gratitude. We need to be more thankful to God. You know how sin loosens its hold on your will? When you are more grateful for what God gives. When you give him more praise and you devote yourself with discipline to giving him more thanks. You sin because you want to. Because you really do believe. I really believe. It's a blessing. And so to realize, no, God is the one who blesses me. God is the one who gives what is good. I am thankful for what God is. I do not want to endanger these things that God gives. You will not easily compromise what you are most thankful for. You will not easily compromise what you are most thankful for. If you are stuck in a cycle of sin, the problem may be that you are just really not thankful enough for what God has given you what he is giving you, what he's promised you. And then finally, desire is changed by sacrificially invested love. Uh, the rest of the chapter goes on about being effective doers of the word. You know, God knows how to direct our love and strengthen our hearts. We just have to listen. You know, I struggle with sin ultimately because I really am not listening to God's direction. Desire is changed when I begin to sacrificially invest myself in a new desire. And that is the Lord himself. The more I increase my investment in the Lord and invest in that desire, the less hold other desires will have over me, especially desires that contradict this. This is just logical. You know, loving my wife, if I really love her, if I'm invested in her, then I'm going to become sensitive to the things that endanger my relationship with my wife. The more I invest in loving my wife, like sacrificially really invest in that, then something that hurts her is not going to seem very alluring anymore because I'm thinking more about how this is going to hurt my relationship with my wife if I choose this thing, even if to me, it seems like something I would like to do or like to involve myself in. I think at some point, the most mature reason why we do not sin is we don't want to grieve God. (laughs) Not because, well, I don't want to feel guilty again. You know, I hate feeling guilty. That's fine. That can help. But ultimately, we don't want to hurt God. We don't want to grieve him. And we don't want to betray a relationship with him. Okay. I'll just restate for the purpose of not going too fast here. Sin works most effectively through my desires. We sin because we want to. If we don't accept that, we're deceived. So how do we overcome this? We've got to change our desires. We need to expose our desire to the truth. We need to ask ourselves better questions about our decisions. We need to get to the why, the roots. Ask questions. 
We've got to deepen our appreciation for what God has given us. And we've got to change how we're investing in our relationship with the Lord if we seem to just be struggling again and again with something that we just are not getting out of. And then finally, and really most importantly, 2 Corinthians 5, is Jesus' death embodies every reality about sin on the cross. The reality that sin deceives, divides, destroys, defiles, Jesus endured those things on the cross so that I could see the reality of sin's blow through him and not just through suffering it myself, which would be hopeless. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Again, God not allowing us to suffer the blow of sin. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So then we are ambassadors for Christ. As God is pleading through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's a really unusual statement there. Uh, Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The idea is not that Jesus became a sinner when he died on the cross. It's the idea that Jesus is exposing us to the truth of sin. Instead of deceiving us, God is showing us the truth. Jesus suffered defilement on the cross. Again, not the defilement that he became a sinner, but Jesus, he was abused. Jesus was misused on the cross. His body was degraded. He was degraded like an animal, worse than an animal on the cross. He suffered the truth of sin's defilement, and he shows us that in his death. Jesus was divided. I don't believe Jesus was divided from the Father on the cross, but he was divided from his disciples and everyone else. Peter denied him three times. Judas betrayed him. Every other disciple abandoned him. He was mocked by the leaders that he loved. Jesus suffered the emotional impact of being divided from people he loved when he was on the cross. He was alone. And Jesus suffered destruction. He died excruciation. He died in many senses alone. God made Jesus suffer those realities of sin so that we could see three things. Jesus suffered in that way to take my place. Meaning sin is more self-destructive than I would ever imagine without seeing Jesus' death. That Jesus was on that cross where I should have been. Jesus suffered the reality of sin's self-destructive nature. And God shows me that in Jesus so that I can be shown mercy. He wants me to see sin through his mercy, not in the absence of it. Jesus' suffering on the cross 
demonstrates the impact of my sin on God in a personal way. That's number two. Jesus' suffering sin on the cross shows me when I sin, I am destroying my relationship with God. I am hurting God. It's not just that Jesus suffered something for my sake. He's representing something. He bore the image of the Father in his earthly life. Jesus' suffering shows that my sin is a big deal to God. It doesn't just make him really angry, really upset. It hurts him. It hurts God more than I can imagine. You know, when your children oftentimes will do something wrong or be hurt, I think a parent's heart hurts more oftentimes than it hurts their children because of their compassion, their love for their children. When we sin, that hurts God catastrophically. But then thirdly, Jesus shows us the urgent necessity of my connection to God on the cross. Independence from God is a lie. Sin's greatest deception is blinding me to the fact that, you know, connected to God, not connected to God, you know, either way, I can live my life, and that's a lie. Sin's greatest deception is blinding me to the urgent necessity of my connection to God. Jesus endured what he endured because my need to be connected to God is urgent and necessary. Jesus didn't die because, well, it'd be nice to have God in my life. Or, you know what? If I have God kind of near me and he can bless me kind of being close, that's pretty good. No. Sin's deception is blinding me to the absolute urgent necessity of being completely plugged in to complete fellowship with the Lord. And God's appeal against sin is focused on Jesus. You know, the gospel is good news. And it's good news because God reveals the reality of the problem of sin by sparing me from its blow and appealing to me through his son. And the appeal of the gospel, although sin is a moral problem, God's greatest appeal against sin is the death of Jesus. And the reality is, if a person is not motivated to repentance because of Jesus' death, that is God's appeal. They're not going to get to heaven. They're not going to be in the kingdom. Jesus is God's greatest appeal. Jesus is the heart of the gospel. He is the foundation. He is the goal of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel. If we are not impacted by what Jesus suffered in a personal way, if we don't realize that Jesus suffered something that I deserve from these things that I've been deceived into thinking, it's no big deal. You know, it seems like this little stuff I've done isn't as bad as that other person who goes to jail or suffers the death penalty. You know, I'm not so bad. If we continue to believe that when we're confronted with Jesus, God is not going to save us. Jesus is God's primary appeal against sin because, back to the main point here, Jesus' death embodies the realities of sin and its personal nature primarily between me and God. We cannot escape Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that we are created in the image of God. We are created to be with God. That is the purpose of our existence. And sin destroys and divides and defiles our relationship with God and deceives us into thinking that our life can be okay in absence of that connection to God. All right. I hope that's been helpful. Why is sin bad? Because sin always destroys. 
Sin is what breaks down any relationship or society. God hates the things that the world hates when they see the victim suffering at the hands of an abuser. God hates those same things. But ultimately, the ultimate problem of sin and the reason why there is so much sin in the world is a problem in a person's relationship with God first. And God knows if we can fix that relationship with him first, we can start fixing the other relationships around us as well. Let's pray for these things. And after that, we'll stand and sing the invitation song. Let's pray.